listeners, in our next episode, we are with Melissa Hooper, who is Director of Foreign Policy and Accountability at Human Rights First. Melissa knows our region, former Soviet Union region, quite well because she's been working on it for quite some time now. Melissa does important work on accountability. Sanctions is one of the domains or interest for her and her daily job is closely related to this work. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks, Simon. Very good to be here. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about uh, sanctions, uh, in particular Magnitsky sanctions. But before we dive into the topic, let's start by explaining to our listeners what are international sanctions and what role do they play in international relations. So let's see, the U.S. has been using sanctions for decades, but usually when the U.S. or other countries, other governments are instituting sanctions, they have been using sanctions against a government. So those are countrywide sanctions that are essentially limiting the government's activity with respect to the United States or economic activity mostly or sometimes sectoral sanctions. And so that limits the ability of companies, for example, within the United States from interacting with or doing business with companies from a particular sector, say the oil and gas sector from another foreign country. But the genius or the innovation of the global Magnitsky sanctions are that they are targeted sanctions against individuals. And this is not the first program that has targeted individuals, but this program took sanctions programs against individual persons and made them global. In particular, this grew out of the Russian Magnitsky Act that I know some listeners will be familiar with from 2012. And so these targeted individual sanctions that are in the Global Magnitsky Act, they prohibit visas um, to be provided to or entry to be provided to individuals who commit human rights offenses or acts of corruption. They also limit economic activity. So property within the United States can be frozen. It is not taken, but it is frozen. So it cannot be used. Um, And that includes bank accounts. Uh, We will dive into uh, the details of the Global Magnitsky Act and its scope of application, Melissa, in in a minute. But uh, maybe you could tell a little more about uh, Sergei Magnitsky to our listeners. Who was Sergei Magnitsky and why are sanctions named after him? So, as I said, the, the Global Magnitsky Act grew out of Russian Magnitsky. And the Russian Magnitsky Act... Um, from 2012, um, was named after him because Sergei Magnitsky was a lawyer. He had uncovered, um, while working for a private enterprise, government corruption to the highest levels in the Russian government. That essentially was using the company, was taking money from this company um, and using it for the benefit of the government. And he reported this. Um, He reported the corruption that he saw and for that was imprisoned. Um, And while he was imprisoned in Russia, suffered, basically was prevented from getting medical care when he needed it, Um, but also had been severely mistreated um, in ways that probably exacerbated um, his medical conditions. And so he died in prison, in Russian prison, both because of his mistreatment and because he was denied medical care. Um, And because the owner 
of Hermitage Capital, the owner of the business that he had worked for, was an American citizen who later moved to the UK and has mostly worked out of the UK, but originally did have a connection to the US. Um, His name is Bill Browder, and he started lobbying the United States with the assistance of other organizations to sanction those involved in this particular, this really egregious um, incident that involved corruption and human rights violations, a combination of the two. And it was a result of his lobbying and, and activities, and I think the seriousness of the offenses and the shocking nature of what happened that we saw the U.S. pass the Global Magnitsky Act, or sorry, the Russian Magnitsky Act in 2012. So in a way, uh, Bill Browder is a sort of a trailblazer in, in the human rights world, because after having failed to find justice for Sergei Magnitsky and his family using conventional mechanisms and tools that people in the human rights community use, he just went beyond and he started thinking and asking himself the question, how can I find justice? What can I do? And this idea about sanctions was one of the things that he looked into. And now this idea is becoming universally accepted instrument, tool that many people use. I would say it's a very interesting development to have someone coming from outside non-human rights community world and making such such an innovative breakthrough. What do you think, Melissa? Yeah, I think, no, this is a good point, that it's it was interesting that um, there was someone from the corporate world, from the business world, who was pushing for human rights sanctions. Of course, human rights sanctions existed before Russian Magnitsky. You know, recently in looking into events in Belarus, you'll notice that there were human rights-related sanctions um, that were available against individuals in who had acted in Belarus in you know, 2006 and um, 2010-11. Um, but you know, I think that what was innovative was taking then the Russian Magnitsky Act and saying, well, we don't necessarily need to focus just on those individual actors in Russia, but we could do this everywhere. And so that second step of then taking Russian Magnitsky and turning it into global Magnitsky and making this not a country-specific program is, I think, where we we saw a real innovation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in in one of our episodes recently, we talked about the implementation of human rights and limits to implementation of international human rights law, which is very much based on the idea of state responsibility, which somehow gets diluted to the point when those individuals who actually commit violations, they do not feel responsibility. And it's quite the opposite. Sometimes they remain in their official positions or sometimes even get promoted. So... I think from if if we look at uh, this problem of accountability from this angle, I think the concept of individual responsibility, which is being promoted by these targeted sanctions, has a good potential. Yeah, I think that is true. I think that is where we've seen sanctions be a significant contribution to sector accountability or the the enterprise of accountability for human rights crimes and offenses. And we've seen some positive movement and some change in governments being able to use sanctions as leverage to change behavior or to at least get the attention 
of those bad actors when you're right, when other mechanisms, global and regional and local mechanisms are failing. Well, let's then dive into the specifics of the Global Magnitsky Act. Maybe you could tell our listeners more about the the scope of application of this piece of legislation. Uh, What is the procedure for the designations and what are the implications for the affected individuals or legal entities? So let's see, as I mentioned earlier, Global Magnitsky grew out of Russian Magnitsky. There are some differences in that the Russian Magnitsky Act focused on gross violations of human rights, so specific human rights violations, whereas the Global Magnitsky Act also includes acts of corruption. So that was new. The Russian Magnitsky Act did, at a certain level, require sanctions. So if information was provided to the U.S. government and it met certain standards, then the U.S. government was required to sanction those individuals. Whereas under Global Magnitsky, these sanctions are always elective. Um, So the U.S. government is receiving information. Um, It is reviewing that information, but then it is also making a judgment call as to whether there is a U.S. interest in applying sanctions against these individuals. So we're always contending with that. Who, where do they get the information? Where does the U.S. government get this information? It gets the information from largely NGOs, which is, I think, a fascinating aspect of Global Magnitsky. The act itself states that NGOs can provide information and suggestions on sanctions to the U.S. government. So there is a submission process whereby NGOs can complete a submission form and provide documentation and support to demonstrate that there have been human rights violations and there have been acts of corruption and or there do not have to be both, but at least one. And then NGOs can also then suggest how and why it will be in the U.S. interest to apply these sanctions. And we've seen uh, sanctions applied in in numerous circumstances um, based on the, the work of NGOs. Do the NGOs in question have to be directly affected or do they have to somehow have some formal affiliation with the victims who have been affected by events in question in order to be able to and eligible to file information or designation requests uh, to the U.S. authorities? That's a, yeah, that's a really good question. The NGOs do not have to be individually or directly affected. The NGOs, they need to have information that is relevant. And so they often are operating within the country where the incidents occur, but that's not required and that's not always true. There are international NGOs that have assisted in gathering information. What they need to do is simply have evidence that supports and demonstrates that their number one has been a violation, either some human rights abuse, or some act of corruption. And number two, that the individual or individuals that they're requesting be sanctioned were involved um, and responsible. And so this can be either individual involvement, maybe ordering that uh, individuals be mistreated or tortured, or it can be, you know, command responsibility or responsibility for the policy of a particular entity that has been 
acting maliciously over a period of time. And so what we see is a policy or a practice, or it can be, you know, someone who is in charge of a government contracting program that appears to be giving, con well, it shouldn't be appears to be, it would have to be shown to be giving contracts to individuals for, you know, for kickbacks or something like that, um, if someone was in charge of that program. And I, I wanted to note that I'm not just talking about those individuals that are, you know, the individual police officers that commit bad acts, because the desire is that there will be some larger change in policy or in practice in the country. So the aim of sanctions is to target those decision makers and not necessarily individual bad actors that make individual decisions. Okay, uh, since we're talking about the NGO submissions, maybe it would be also useful to talk about the standard of proof and uh, kind of degree of scrutiny that is requested or required by the U.S. authorities vis-a-vis -vis the information which is supplied by the NGOs, among others. How thorough this information has to be? Is it only first-hand information or can they also use some information which is obtained from open sources? What's the, what's the standard of proof? So the Global Magnitsky Act requires that there be acts of gross violations of human rights or significant acts of corruption. But I want to just clarify for everyone that after the act was passed, the U.S. government, the president's office, the, the president signed an executive order that modified the standard. So in practice, the standard is a little bit more lenient. It is, quote, serious human rights abuses and acts of corruption. So that just makes it a little bit easier to show that there is a serious human rights abuse. And, you know, that may mean that the actions would not necessarily be defined within the gross violations of human rights standard in, say, the European Court of Human Rights. But if they were serious enough that someone's physical health were damaged, that could rise to the level that would require sanctions or would allow sanctions. Um, and then acts of corruption, the standard is therefore you know, very simple. It's just acts of corruption. Now, when we talk to the U.S. government about what they're looking for, they do have specific types of crimes and activities that they are looking for. As I mentioned with the human rights abuses, they are looking for some physical harm. Um, so property harm is not likely to result in sanctions. So, you know, even setting fire to religious buildings is not necessarily going to result in sanctions. We're looking for, you know, as part of that fire, individuals were harmed. Um, and so that often means torture, cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, um, rape. It can mean arbitrary detention, but that detention must have some additional harmful aspects of the conditions of confinement or the length of time, something like that. And then for acts of corruption, we're talking about things like bribery, using public resources for private gain, using public contracting programs in ways that enrich private individuals, things like that. Um, and then in terms of the evidence that must be presented, yes, there are also requirements uh, for the evidence. 
both open and closed sources can be used. And by that, I mean that sources such as news articles can be used or information from public reporting by NGOs or by governments. For example, I know both the Swiss and the U.S. governments do human rights reports every year. Those can be used. UN reports can be used. And of course, special rapporteur reports, things like that, that are all open source or public materials. But NGOs can also use closed sources. So if they are able to interview a victim or interview a witness and obtain, yeah, obtain a statement, I think ideally that statement should be witnessed um, by someone. And so there is some indicia of reliability, but those statements can be produced and as part of the the process. Also videos or photos that the NGO took or obtained, those can also be used. I think it's important to note that in general, what the U.S. government is looking for, for each major allegation, there should be two sources of support. And so the NGO can itself gather information and the NGO may have information about the acts that occurred and who committed them or who should be sanctioned. But the NGO will have to refer to at least one other source so that there are two sources that show what happened and two sources that show who was involved. Um, maybe let's talk a little bit about the role of the victims. Do they have any kind of formal role in this process? Can they be the filing parties? And can they somehow influence this process of decision-making in terms of designations or what happens with them in the post-designation situation? Yeah, that's actually a, a very good question because there is no formal discussion of the role of victims in the legislation. However, of course, we have seen situations where victims have been involved in the filing of submissions, in in the providing of information to the U.S. government. Sometimes they have provided statements or have helped an NGO to collect information. But the victim does not have to be involved. Um, If the victim is concerned about repercussions and the NGO, a local NGO, would like to submit information, that will work also. And um, in a third situation, we have seen NGOs, a local NGO, that itself feels that it could be targeted if its participation becomes public. And so the NGO provides us, Human Rights First, with the information, and then we will submit to the U.S. government on their behalf. And we will tell the U.S. government there isn't a local NGO behind this submission that wishes not to be named. And if the information itself is all sufficient, then that will move forward. If the U.S. government has any questions, they would then come back to to human rights first and say, we need, you know, some additional information. It's actually very rare that they do that because their process is quite closed. And once they receive information, they basically say, thank you. (laughs) And then they move forward. There are a couple of ways that victims can participate in the process 
after a submission is made, even before there's a decision, and then perhaps after a decision is made. After a submission is made, it is important to for the NGO and for us at Human Rights First also, we engage in advocacy, not only making the submission, but trying to get additional support for it and to demonstrate to the State Department and the Treasury Department why it's important that these individuals be sanctioned. And so that often means for us working with members of Congress and going to meet with their offices, especially Senate Foreign Relations Committee and House Foreign Affairs Committee, but often others, and talk with them about why it's important to apply sanctions in a particular country and on particular individuals. And so victims, I think, can be very effective there in helping to advocate with members of Congress that they support the sanctions and that they make their support clear to the Department of State and Department of Treasury. Yeah, we saw this, for example, with the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and his fiance Hatice Chengiz, has been meeting with members of Congress to try to institute sanctions that are required, but that the presidential administration has failed to use against some of those responsible. And so I would say that even when sanctions are applied, the victim of a particular violation can be instrumental in working with members of Congress and that and state and treasury to make sure that you know the statement of sanctions is actually enacted or implemented that's usually not a problem but in making clear why the sanctions were instituted and what needs to be done in order for them to be uh, removed we can see victims play an instrumental role there can victims communicate with the US government in an anonymous way i can easily imagine that you know any sort of interaction of this kind with the US government for individuals who remain in the country exposes them with to quite high level of risk. And I also can easily imagine that when they interact with the US government, they often wish to remain anonymous. Is is there a way for them to remain anonymous? And how is can this be done? So to preserve anonymity, we can have victims working through the human rights first process to provide statements and provide information anonymously. And then human rights first can provide that to the State Department and Treasury Department. And if there is some, either a witness or if human rights first can essentially provide a statement that we are aware of who this person is and this person is a trustworthy witness we can provide the information anonymously. When speaking with members of Congress, you know, the process is different because members of Congress will want direct contact with whomever they're speaking with. And so in that, in an advocacy setting, I would say that maybe a local NGO could take the lead and either gather information, gather a recording of a statement or a written statement, and then they could meet with, either by phone or in person, a member of Congress and say, we have statements from victims that are directly affected and we'd like to provide them to you, though we will not provide the identity of the victims because it will hurt their safety. Mm -hmm. Good. Melissa, based on your practice and observations from the past, 
How long does it usually take uh, from the US government to decide on the designation uh, from the point of filing when they receive a request from NGO or from any other uh, stakeholder? Yeah, well, Simone, that really depends on the situation um, because there are times when the US government acts quite quickly because they have their own interest in either promoting democracy or in sending a message in that situation. Two examples. One, as I mentioned, after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the U.S. government did institute sanctions against 17 individuals quite quickly. I think the question is whether those individuals were really those that were the most culpable or responsible. Um, And I think most Um, analysts have said that most of them were not, that it did send a message, but it did not go to the highest levels of those responsible. But in the situation with Belarus, we did see there was a little bit of a time lag, but that was because the U.S. wanted to coordinate with the EU. And so we eventually saw individual sanctions issued by the U.S. and the EU on the same day, sanctioning 40 or 41 for each country, individuals that were involved. And so, you know, that was a situation where there hadn't necessarily been specific submissions by NGOs. There had been information provided by the human rights community, and the U.S. wanted to act quickly. Generally, we see the U.S. put out a slate of global Magnitsky sanctions every human rights day, December 10th or around that, maybe that week. But then they may do others during the year when they have a slate that has been researched and they would like to put it out, they don't necessarily wait until December 10th. And so generally we say that it it may take, you know, six months to a year, but it really depends. You know, it depends on whether there is a U.S. interest that we can articulate clearly and obtain some buy-in or support from members of Congress in support for that U.S. interest in sanctioning, um, whether we can connect to other policy priorities of the U.S. and the U.S. government. If the, the sanctions that we're promoting do connect to another policy priority, we can see sanctions happen more quickly. I think that's unfortunate that we do need to be arguing within the U.S. interest and that sometimes that means that our government The U.S. government is not applying sanctions when it should. For example, Egypt. We've seen a real human rights deterioration in Egypt over the past several years. We have not seen any sanctions. And so there are some political considerations, um, and that can be a problem. But in, in the best circumstances, it can take maybe six months, sometimes up to a year. But again, the best thing to do is to try to make arguments that acknowledge and even bolster other U.S. priorities, foreign policy priorities, um, to get a quicker response. Right. Let's maybe talk a little bit about the risk of retaliation against uh, individuals on the ground who might or might not be affiliated with the process of designations. Uh, and one case that comes to my mind is the case of Oyub Titiev, who was with head of Chechnya office of uh, Human Rights Center Memorial. Uh, I remember clearly that his arrest uh, on trumped-up charges uh, has followed somewhat 
and was related possibly to the designation of uh, Ramzan Kadyrov by the US government under the global Magnitsky sanctions. And, you know, some colleagues uh, have made this link between Kadyrov's designation and arrest of Oyub Titiev. Have there been any other cases when, you know, local individuals like persons in the position of power uh, have retaliated against uh, activists, human rights defenders, political opposition, or anyone else who might have been affiliated with the process of designation? Do you know of other examples like this? I actually don't know of other examples. And I think what's difficult is that the U.S. is trying to apply sanctions with the hope that the sanctions will change behavior. The goal is to apply the sanctions, and then uh, the statement is that if these actions stop or are reversed, that the sanctions could be lifted. And there are people in the world, like Kadyrov, who see the sanctions as a badge of honor and who are not likely to change their own behavior for the better. And I think that the U.S. is still wanting to send a message that the violations are unacceptable. You know, the government is, in my opinion, actually doing a very good job of maintaining the confidentiality of any materials submitted. So I think that, you know, in that situation, it's Kadyrov guessing that Titiev was involved. And you're right, in some situations, because there are such closed environments, it can be easier for government officials to guess who may have been involved in providing the information. But confirming that is impossible um, because the documents are either anonymized or kept within the State Department in very secure circumstances. And even under circumstances where there might be a request, a freedom of information request, any information that could highlight who might have been providing the facts is not provided, is cleaned off of the documents. So, I mean, what you're pointing to is that in closed environments, it can be easier for bad actors to determine or at least make a guess on who may have been responsible. And you're right that they may act out. And so that's a second step of protection that we need to be thinking about providing for human rights defenders and NGOs. Oh, another important question, I think, is whether or not and to what extent the U.S. government is monitoring the impact of the sanctions imposed on individuals and entities to see whether the change of behavior has actually occurred or not. Is it something that is done on a regular systematic basis? I wish it were done on a regular and systematic basis. However, it is not at this point. Um, right now, the U.S. government still relies on local actors, on NGOs and sometimes think tanks, depending on the regional area, to provide information about whether the sanctions are having an impact. Right now, the Global Magnitsky team in the State Department and in the Treasury Department each is just a few individuals. And so they are able to do some research about the impact, but because there are hundreds of individuals that have now been sanctioned, it's difficult for them to monitor the repercussions in every country. And so they really, they have told us that they are really grateful for any information and support that NGOs can provide. For example, sometimes NGOs have shown that 
with the sanctions applied to certain individuals. They can't use the banks they've been using, so they're starting to transfer their money to another series of banks. And so getting that information about where their their secondary acts of corruption are occurring, how they may be misusing certain banking procedures, that could mean that you could see additional sanctions or at least sanctions enforcement proceedings. But right now, no, we don't. The, the government, the U.S. government doesn't have the support and the depth in each of those units to do all of the follow-up. And so any information NGOs can provide and human rights defenders can provide is also very helpful. Good. Bill Browder, who at this point has turned also himself into a global human rights campaigner, did not stop there when the U.S., uh, well, first Russian and then Global Magnitsky Act was enacted but continued to promote this idea and this approach in other countries. And, you know, he has actually succeeded in other places like Canada, UK and Baltic states. Now, the European Union is also considering to adopt a similar piece of legislation. Actually, EU does have a sort of a mechanism for sanctions, but the way it is framed today is very hard to be used because it requires anonymous decision of the all member states sitting in the council. So they're discussing now to adopt more simplified approach, which will enable the European Union to respond to situations like uh, gross human rights violations and possibly corruption. Do you think, Melissa, it would be a good thing for the European Union to adopt such piece of legislation which will mimic the Global Magnitsky Act? So the information I have is that the EU Act will not include corruption. It will only include human rights violations, which I think is unfortunate because I think the two often go together. And I wish that the EU would include corruption. Um, but I think the decision was made that it's more difficult to define. And so it won't. But to answer your question, yes, I do think the EU should have a global Magnitsky type program. I hear that it may not be called Magnitsky, which for me is fine. I know Bill Browder doesn't like that, but I think that's fine, whatever it is called. I think it's important to have it. And in particular, I think it's best if we can begin to see coordination among states that have human rights sanctions, targeted sanctions, so that, for example, when the US and the EU together look at sanctioning and then apply sanctions to particular individuals, that will make their life very difficult. It will be very difficult for them to uh, use a banking system that does not have a connection to either the US or the EU. And then when we see Canada and the UK get involved, again, this makes travel and financial activity very difficult. So I think that if we start to see coordination, that would be the best case scenario. And it's looking like we'll see very possibly global Magnitsky type sanctions appear in Australia and Japan as well. I know they're considering them. Maybe in the, in the next year, we could see them as well as in the EU. And so as we see more countries get involved and more countries make life difficult for bad actors, I think you could see some mechanisms that are putting real pressure on corrupt actors, on human rights violators, and that could be a real game changer. Good. Well, let's maybe also talk about the elephant in the room, which is something that critics of the sanctions approach often voice themselves, saying that 
countries like United States, which doesn't have excellent human rights record back home, which has serious problems like structural racism, death penalty, and many other things, which you know do not come hand in hand with the preaching uh, that the U.S. often does in international relations. How does this reconcile with the idea of you know sanctioning individuals abroad for human rights violations when you yourself are doing things at home for which you are trying to sanction individuals abroad, and how? can we as a civil society try to address this issue? I think, yes, um, what you point out is true, that the U.S. has so many problems that have continued to fester more recently, structural racism definitely being one, um, use of the death penalty definitely being another, but many others. Um, I think that the U.S., when it's at its best, is both focused on working on those problems. There are, there's a robust civil society within the U.S. that is trying to take the government to task um, and demonstrate where it needs to do better on all on you know the two issues that we named, but also many others. And I don't think that trying to hold those accountable um, abroad for human rights violations is inconsistent with trying to improve the situation within the U.S. I think that the point is that the U.S. needs to not use the sanctions politically and that U.S. civil society needs to be holding the U.S. accountable on that front so that the sanctions are applied when they apply, for example, Saudi Arabia, as well as you know when there is a government um, or an individual who is acting poorly in a country where the U.S. doesn't have close relationships, let's say the Congo. We need to make sure that they're applied consistently. And so uh, civil society has been actively trying to do that. And we saw, for example, an uproar when the U.S. used sanctions to respond to a house arrest of a Christian pastor in Turkey. There was a general sense that that was a bad use of them. And so I think that any country that has a proper human rights evaluation and one that is um, objective and has a lot of input from independent NGOs um, can use the sanctions in a positive way, but that there needs to be a real uh, participation and accountability to the NGOs that are involved, that are providing the information, um, and to the human rights community, sort of writ large, you know, international human rights community. Um, that we need to just make sure that the sanctions aren't politicized. And if they start to be politicized, then they will be useless. Um, so we need a real push to make sure that that doesn't happen and a response when it starts to. Good. Thank you, Melissa. I really hope that we will see more and more countries, democratic countries, adopting this approach and also acting in a coordinated manner to amplify the effects of sanctions and you know of individuals feeling punished for their misbehavior when they violate rights of others or when they engage in the acts of corruption uh, but it seems that this is the direction that you know democratic world is going towards and i think we will also see more and more civil society actors taking up this issue and getting engaged on this any final thoughts for our listeners from your side? Sure. I would 
I would say one thing. I do think that the U.S. in particular has relied too heavily on sanctions as an important part of its foreign policy program and in supporting human rights as part of its foreign policy program. And I wish and I hope that we will see sanctions just become one one tool in a larger toolbox that includes a lot of diplomacy, you know, support for civil society, work with civil society, even funding for civil society, and other accountability mechanisms that can be improved with the coordination of the U.S. and other countries and other governments. I do think it's a bit overused right now, but I do think it it is also an important tool. Um, So I hope that we will be able to hone it we being the United States, but also we being the civil society global community as we get better um, at working with it and at learning to, to hold bad actors accountable. Thank you very much, Melissa Hooper, Director of Foreign Policy and Accountability at Human Rights First, for Thank you, Simone. talking to our listeners. We will be back uh, on more on accountability in our next episodes. We will discuss other instruments like universal jurisdiction or international criminal courts and how they can be used in specific contexts when we're dealing with lack of accountability through domestic legal systems. 